Podcast. We are continuing with our series, Puzzles About God. We spent the last two episodes looking at the puzzle of how God can be both three and one. And now we are going to take a couple of episodes to consider the puzzle of how God could become human. And uh, today, Austin will be walking us through some of the things that you should not say about God's becoming human. All right. Uh, In Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9, Jesus asked his disciples, what is perhaps the most crucial question in our lives? Who do you say that I am? What we say about Jesus is absolutely central to what it means to be a Christian and to our existence. And it's true for a handful of reasons. For the disciples, uh, they believe Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the creator and sustainer of everything. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, which we ourselves are awaiting, and the inauguration of the new humanity, um, and the one who fulfills all of God's creation project. So in Jesus, we're saying that Israel's God, Yahweh, creator of the universe, the one God, who is totally transcendent, holy other, all these attributes that we talked about at the beginning of this series, omnipotent and eternal and omnipresent, that this God entered into creation, took on the nature of a finite creature. If you don't think that's crazy, then you weren't listening to the first, (laughs) the last six episodes. (laughs) You know, if we think about God just as like a big cosmic superhero or, you know, God's the artist who makes everything or some kind of, you know, divine king up in the sky kind of thing, then it might just it might not seem as big of a deal. But if we remember that God is not a creature, God is not an object in the world like we are, then this is a crazy claim that this God became human in Christ. So what are we saying when we make this claim? Uh, as Justin said, we're going to start out with really what not to say when we make this claim. Uh, and then next episode, Patrick will go through some models on how to think about uh, what this means within the, the orthodox boundaries. So our Christological heresies can be divided up into three main categories. We have those that deny the full divinity of Christ, those that deny the full humanity of Christ, and those which posit a sort of divine human composite. So basically they fail to maintain a tension between the humanity and divinity by confusing them. Um, <clears throat> so... Again, what we think about Christ is really central to what it, how we understand what it means to be a Christian and the rest of our theology. Right? This isn't just metaphysical speculation or the church fathers being these pedantic control freaks. Uh, but it affects our view of the church and how we think about the church in relationship to the rest of creation, what we think the purpose of our own lives is, all these big questions. A lot of it actually comes down to who we think Christ is, how we think God is relating with creation in Christ. So tell, tell us about approaches which deny the divinity of Christ. Awesome. Let's start with this one. Not uh, awesome. This is not awesome. Don't <laughs> deny the divinity of Christ. Let's be clear about uh, that. <laughs> but excellent segue, Justin. Way, way to, to really hone us in. Uh, first one, really simple. Uh, the Ebionites uh, were a first, second century Jewish, Jewish sect which basically just said that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, but they denied the virgin birth and denied that Jesus was pre-existent, that, that the Christ came into being just like any other human, and 
that's it. So it's, it's like pretty common belief these days, right? Amongst non Christians, people just say, "Oh, I think Jesus was a good moral teacher, but I don't think Jesus was God." Exactly. So great guy, got some good things to say, but you know, just pretty much just the average Joe, average uh, Jesus. <laughs> Okay, so, but here are two bigger ones that kind of get us into the early church debates. So first one we actually mentioned already briefly with the Trinitarian episode, uh, and this is Arianism. So Arius, as I said before, was a presbyter in the Church of Alexandria, so a leader in the church there in Egypt. And again, his teaching was trying to defend the transcendence of God, right? He's trying to uphold that this monotheism, that there's one God who is holy, and in the end, Arius was forced to conclude that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to also be a created being. And this ended up creating a discussion around this concept of the essence of Jesus. So we have this phrase maybe you've heard before, the homo usias. Uh, if you remember from our Trinity discussion, that usias, usia is being or essence. So homo usias is same being, same essence. So the son is of the same essence as the father. Uh, this is the orthodox conclusion uh, in the discussion. Uh, whereas Arian would say that, uh, Arius would say that he is homo usias, that he's of like essence as the father. So he has some divine attributes, um, more of like a demigod kind of thing, but he is not actually God. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So a kind of a lesser a lesser deity has shares some of the divinity, but is not not the divine. He has a godlike essence, mm-hmm. but not a divine essence. Exactly. So uh, sometimes you'll hear this articulated in the creeds of of Jesus being consubstantial with the Father, literally with having the same substance or same nature as as the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we mentioned before as well, this is basically would would describe the view held by Jehovah's Witnesses today. That Jesus is is special, maybe the the highest creation or something like that, but isn't actually God. So, okay, so that's Arianism. So second of these in this category of denying the full divinity of Christ is Nestorianism. Now, Nestorius uh, was the bishop of Constantinople and about in the early 5th century. Uh, and there was a debate about this language of Theotokos, which is a name given to Mary, mother of Jesus, and it means God-bearer. So Mary was called the God-bearer, the one who, who literally gave birth to God. And Nestorius didn't like this term because he thought it implied that, uh, that the baby in Mary's womb had only this one divine nature, or divine person, and he was trying to distinguish between the human person and divine person in Christ. And so he proposed the use of the term Christokos, Christ-bearer. And basically, what he was trying to do was maintain this distinction between the human person and the divine person. So he didn't want to say that the divine person was born uh, from Mary, but only the human person was born from Mary. So if you think about this, now you've got two persons, uh, the human person who's being united with the divine person, but they're remaining separate. And so what this ultimately does is it says that that Jesus um, isn't fully 
divine. Because mm-hmm. he's like, he's he, instead of being a divine person, he's just in some way united with a different person who's a divine person. Yeah, you've got God the Son or the Word, and you've got Jesus, the human guy, guy walking around who was born of Mary, and there's some important connection between them, but they're two different people on that view. That that's not a that's not the union that we're talking about of one person with two natures. Right. Exactly. Which gets me to our second creedal formula in this part of the series, Ooh. and that is the hypostatic union. So if you remember from our Trinity discussion, we had one usia, three hypostases. Well, in Christ, we have one hypostasis, so one person, but two natures. So we have one person, which is a united human divine person, and two natures, a divine nature, so all that is God, and a human nature, all that are humans, of course, or all that humans are, uh, of course, without, without sin. But in Nestorianism, we not only have these two distinct natures, so we have the human nature and divine nature, but we actually have two distinct persons, human person, divine person, and that these are united in the sense that they're sort of coexisting side by side in the person of Jesus, but Jesus is not both, is not the divine person himself. Yeah, I mean, that way of putting it is, so you said they're coexisting side by side in the person of Jesus. I mean, in the, <laughs> it's like, yeah. what is the thing? Because there's, there's supposed to be, on the Nestorian view, there are two different people. So it's like, what is the thing that is the union of the two of them? I mean, maybe there's no word for whatever that is. But mm-hmm. mm. yeah. yeah, so this was condemned uh, at the Council of Rome in AD 430. And basically it was seen as denying this full divinity of Christ. So we'll now refer back to that formula uh, as it's, it's useful. Now we've introduced it. Our next series of heresies is those that deny the full humanity of Christ. So the first of these uh, is come to be known as docetism. And this is basically the idea that Jesus, uh, in, in an attempt to really preserve the divinity of Jesus, came to claim that Jesus was just the, the human person Jesus we see. It was just an appearance of being human. All right, this was actually a totally divine person and just seemed to have these human qualities. Um, this especially comes into place with, for example, the suffering that, uh, Jesus experiences. So they might either say that the divinity left Jesus, um, or he only appeared to suffer. And some of this goes back to the, the idea of the impassibility of God, that God can't suffer, um, because God can't change. So if God can't change, God can't suffer. So just the human is suffering and or just appearing to suffer. Um, this tends to be associated with Gnosticism, just because it, it seems to set up this duality between God and creation, such that God couldn't really be in creation, and that's why God just appears to be uh, in creation as Jesus, but isn't actually. Um, or tends to see this association between God and matter as a, as a bad thing, that these two are in, in opposition. Um, there's also a a sense in which this is one of the big uh, objections that Muslims have to the incarnation takes a similar approach that the transcendent God couldn't possibly enter into creation. And so 
for them, the, the incarnation is really an offense to the transcendence of God, right? That God, because God is transcendent, God can't, couldn't possibly become incarnate. Um, so docetism, I don't know that anyone, this is one of those positions that I don't know that anyone specifically defended so much as, uh, it's seen as like a, a tendency that people, like there's not a particular name I, as far as I'm aware that's associated with docetism. I think um, there there were people who I, yeah I, I know I don't know if there are people know. who held the views like this yeah I don't think it was like one particular person who was condemned for being a, for being like, the docetist yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 and that's why I say it's associated with kind of Gnostic yeah and the the contrast there is with like Arianism and Nestorianism where the heresies got a name from the guy who was like the major proponent mm-hmm. yeah. Even was, modalism is sometimes called Sabalianism. Because of Sabalius, yeah. Yeah, you don't really want a heresy <laughs> named after you. <laughs> it's not a great look. It tends to be bad. <laughs> so the next one is named after some poor chap. Uh, this guy is Apollinaris, the bishop of Laodicea. And so this is called Apollinarianism. I guess I'll put an, uh, an aside in right here. I mean, I feel like... Uh, as we're outlining the boundaries of how to talk about the Trinity and the Incarnation, and then, you know, with the last episode, we looked at, okay, so then there's this this problem for thinking about the Trinity, uh, where it looks like it entails an inconsistent triad, and that's hard to make sense of. You get a sense for why some people uh, said the things they did, like Arius or uh, Nestorius or, or whatnot. Uh, you know, we. It, I think it. It's fine to say that they. Uh, it's and right to say that they embraced heresy and what they said was false, but it's like another thing to like vilify them. Mm. They are clearly trying to get to the truth the same way that we are, and uh, they just like had a hard time of it. In a way, you might just pity them for <laughs> having gone before us. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, if you know, if we were back in the 2nd or 3rd or 4th or 5th century, we might be the the guys who tried out the heresy that no one had tried out yet because we were just trying to solve this problem. I definitely would have been. <laughs> <laughs> guys, th- this is it. This I found the, the solution. Yeah, no, that's a good... Because obviously we're thinking about all this in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Of course. And yeah. we're looking at, like, we're literally the thing that we are comparing these to is the formula that exists because they said these things. Yeah. Right? So the formula that we're saying doesn't line up with this only exists because they made these mistakes. Yeah. Now, in some particular and only, in sense, mistakes because they made them. Yeah. In some particular cases, these, uh, these guys were church leaders. And when the rest of the church came and said, uh, sorry, that's not that's not right, and here are the reasons, and, and uh, you need to stop preaching that. They, they didn't, and they mm. kept on going in defiance of the rest of the church, and that's not, that's not good. Uh, so it's not like, I'm, I'm not trying to say that every uh, historical figure we've discussed is a uh, saint, you know, like a moral saint who just came to a false view or something like that, but I think it's good to have a measured view mm. about the character of some of these people. And, um, in fact, there might be some kind of profitability to going and still reading Arius and mm-hmm. some of these other people and seeing what, what were they trying to work through? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think I kind of 
left some of the complexity of it for uh, you to figure out next episode. But <laughs> <laughs> but just like Justin laid out right, right with in the second Trinity episode, like it is a really it's not easy. That's the point. Yeah. Uh, if it was, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. And and none of those people probably would have uh, said the things they did mm. if it was easy. Okay, so back to Apollinarius. Yeah. I'm sorry for that, that was aside. A good, good aside. Uh, so Apollinaris. Um, so in his view, uh, in Apollinaris's view, the Logos, which is the sort of pre-existent second person of the Trinity, the divine uh, nature and person, assumes a human body in Jesus, uh, but not the whole human nature. So within the human person of Jesus, the soul, the mind, all those things are divine, uh, but not at all human. So, so this is like the body snatcher version of the incarnation. Yeah. Like there's a body and God's going and like, uh, operating through operating that body. He's like, a, he's like a divine puppeteer, but there's like, there's no human soul light on yeah. inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, nobody, uh, no human consciousness or, uh, soul or mind or whatever other stuff mm-hmm. you think has to be added to get you a human person besides just like a corpse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just the sort of human physicality without yep. any of the cognitive pro- properties that come with that. Yeah, it's a little bit macabre. <laughs> you know, zombie, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually, in his defense, was put forward as a response to Arianism. Uh, yeah. Right? So he, Arius, is coming out and saying, no, Jesus is, is actually a created being. There's a time when he was not. And Apollinaris is wanting to say, no, he, he is fully divine. But he, he goes too far in the other direction, right, of, of overemphasizing the divinity at the cost of losing a full humanity. So Jesus, in this view, is fully God, but is not fully human. And this was condemned at the Council of Constantinople in AD 381, for anyone who was wondering. Keeping track of the... Got to keep this council council score. <laughs> uh, lastly, our third category for Christological heresies is the confusion of Christ's natures. So, again, to reiterate, we have one person with two natures: divine nature, human nature. So, the first of these is Eutychianism, uh, put forward by Eutyches of Constantinople, and he proposed one blended nature. So basically the two, you start out with a human nature and a divine nature, and they get blended into what basically is like a third nature that is neither human or divine, or is sort of both, but it, it's a third nature that's different from anything else that exists. This yeah. is the shake and bake model of incarnation. <laughs> Just throw it all in the blender, and <laughs> whatever comes out. Yeah, it's a yeah, new well, thing. You can kind of think of it as like the Superman model, right? Because it's not quite human, it's not quite mm. divine, it's like something in between. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, yeah, that's really how, the best way to understand. So, we've got that view, um, which basically denies that you have two distinct natures, right? It doesn't, it doesn't maintain the full humanity, full divinity. You sort of merge the divan, divinity and humanity and end up with something that isn't quite either one of them. Yeah. Uh, the la- the, then we have monophysitism, and this basically s- had kind of a similar approach. So you have the humanity and the divinity, but 
the divinity being what it is just sort of absorbs the humanity, right? It just overwhelms, overpowers it, and absorbs it. Um, so you still end up with one nature, monophysite, one only only nature. Fusis is the Greek word for nature, right? Fusis. Uh, yeah, all those upsilons get changed to y's, and it yeah. messes up our English pronunciations. So the yeah, so you have you don't have instead of Christ having one person, two natures, you end up with just one nature, and it's sort of this divine nature that's absorbed the human nature. So. They wouldn't deny the full humanity in the sense that Jesus starts with the full humanity, but doesn't maintain having a full oh, humanity. Oh, I see. So the idea is that at one time, there's a whole human nature, and at a later time, there's a divine nature, but there's never both, because the divine absorbs the human instead of just coming alongside it or something. Yeah, I think the thought is that you want to capture the claim about the the union of two natures, the hypostatic mm-hmm. union that we talked about. Uh-huh. But then some people thought, well, what would what's a uh, sort of conceptual consequence of unifying a divine nature and a human nature in one person? I see. It would just be that the divine nature would like swamp the human nature. I see. So mm-hmm. you end up with just a divine. You just end so up. So there's with a, a person with a divine nature hanging out from eternity. And then one day they're like, I'm going to make a human nature and then assume it. Mm-hmm. And in assuming it, it actually like goes back out of existence again. <laughs> okay. Or like dropping a drop of water into the ocean, right? Like, yeah. it's there, kind I guess. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's something. Like, or like a drop of oil into the ocean. Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. But the dispersion it's, yeah. it makes it meaningless. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's at least my understanding of this view. Yeah, I that's interesting. I did not realize that there was a distinction between Eutychianism and monophysitism before. Yeah, it'd be. I think you'd have to read up the actual historical sources to see just how yeah fine of a or how hard of a line the distinction is. Uh huh. Yeah, because so you get another view that's sort of a, a subcategory in this, which is meophysitism, okay. and this is actually a view that is a little more debatable. So this is a view held by like Coptic and Ethiopian Orthodox, and they would argue that it's an Orthodox view, right? They mm-hmm. they would argue this, this is, is these are traditions that are still active. In yeah, the yeah. So this is Orthodox these are some of the oldest yeah. oldest consistent Christian traditions in the world. Uh-huh. Um, and they hold to this view they call Meophysitism, which they actively distinguish from Monophysitism, and some of it. If you read into it, the debate, a lot of it, the debate comes down to actually just differences of language, like the kind of categories, you, conceptual categories used in Greek versus what they were doing with Coptic and Syriac and just didn't quite overlap. And so I think it was one of those that were maybe talking past each other. Hmm. But basically, they want to argue that the, the, comp, the unity of the two natures results in one person who is human and divine, which we would say... But they see that they see the natures in just a more unif like they see the natures as being unified, and they think that you should then just think of that as one nature. So it's a thought that you have uh, you have instead of uh, so in Eutychianism we said there was like a blended nature. That's what mm-hmm. I was calling the shake and bake model. And you take the two natures, you combine them, and you get a new thing, and it's not reducible to either of the two things you started with. On is meophysitism the view that like it's like a more of a building block view like mm-hmm. you have uh, two natures you 
stick them together like Legos, and now you have a new nature, but, oh, it has two composite exactly. parts uh, that are nice. these other natures. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, so the unity is one of composition, not of blending. And uh-huh. So it's, co- yeah, composition rather than mixture or something like that is maybe yes. the way to think about so it. So really, the difference between this view and the orthodox view, sorry, well, this view and the orthodox view, at least as it's usually interpreted, I would say, is whether or not the two natures together compose another a third nature, yeah. or if it's just you got two natures, they yeah. don't compose anything. So, okay. that one's, you know, I mean, people did split over that, but yeah. it's it's somewhat debatable how strongly that should be thought of as being heretical. Yeah, in fact, it's not clear it that it would be inconsistent with any of the ecumenical creeds to say that, oh, there's a nature which is composed of these two nevertheless discrete mm-hmm. natures, a human and a divine nature. It, it would be like adding something to them, but not clearly contradicting them. Uh, and they might even see something like that the the hypostatic union, like the one person, is the composite of the two natures, or something like that. Where you have one, you still have the same three concepts, right? Two natures, one person, but the two natures are are you they, the distinction between a nature and a person they might i think that becomes a more blurry distinction. oh i see so they might not be using those same conceptual categories like when you say there's one person they see that as like oh yeah one person with two natures that is therefore one thing uh-huh. in a way that the the sort of more or the ortho the the other rest of the people were saying no those are two distinct things two distinct natures and they're wanting to say well yeah, but you have one person, so you really just have one nature. Interesting. Something like that. I'm not an expert on that. My North African uh, <laughs> theologies, but... All right. Uh, one more coming out of this same vein is monothelitism. So this is the idea that, uh, that Christ had one will. So mono, one, uh, theles, will... Thelis? Thelia? Uh, I think it's Thelis. It's either Thelis or Thelos. Okay. But, yeah. So, Christ had one will. Uh, This was a development out of another view called Monoenergism. And this was proposed by Patriarch Sergius I of Constantinople. This is part of, like, you get all the fun church history (laughs) politics going on here. Uh, Basically... He was trying to avoid this conflict between divine and human agency. Yeah. Right. Uh, so the question is, like, can, could Jesus sin? Could Jesus sin? Or... Uh, and could, could Jesus... Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably a driving question. Yeah. And do you, do you end up with this picture of Jesus, of Jesus as almost like a divine human schizophrenic? Mm-hmm. You have, like, two different consciousnesses with two different wills. One that can sin, one that cannot sin. And then they're in conflict. Yeah, which and we'll talk about more of this kind of worry for some models of the, of the incarnation in the next episode. But it's, it's definitely something to think about. Yeah, so when he... So that's, that's sort of what he's trying to avoid. And there was this proposal of, of monoenergism. And this was seen to contradict the idea of two natures because they thought, well, energia is a part of nature. So if... So energia is like a um, sort of like the the efficient cause, the driving force of a, a person, 
Yeah, it's like a it's a activity or an energy the like uh, the driving principle behind the person's actions. Yeah, so this was seen to be because this was seen to be an aspect of one's nature, not one's personhood. And Jesus has two natures. You'd have two competing energies. Not necessarily competing. Well, but not necessarily. Two distinct. Energies, two distinct right? energies. So, to in order to avoid this worry, Sirius shifted to proposing two natures. Uh, so he so leaving so leaving aside mono energy. Yeah. So he's like, okay, there are two energies. That's fine. But there's just one will. So there's one will that's that's uniting or directing the two energies. Mm-hmm. So you've got two sort of agencies or acting forces, but one will that's directing them together. Um, yeah, this was uh, condemned in, in the late 7th century um, with the proclamation that Christ had two, two natural wills, two natural energies without division, alteration, separation, or confusion. Why is it bad to deny that, uh, or to say that Christ only has one will? The reason this distinction is here is, yeah. is again, goes back to this whole thing of nature and persons. Will was conceived of as being uh, also tied to nature. So just like energies go back to nature, so if Christ is human nature, divine nature, then he has two energies, if you use the, the Greek terminology there. Um, he also then has two wills, because will is also something that is part of nature, not part of personhood. Yeah, and he, I mean, here's an intuitive way of thinking about it, is uh, if Christ only has one will, what kind of will is it? Is it a divine will or a human will? Well, uh, if Christ only has one will, it's got to be the divine will, because he's had a divine will from eternity. So when Christ assumes a human nature, it's not like he's going to lose his divine will and gain a human will, like swap them out or something like that. Um, so then, if there's only one will, it's got to be the divine will. But then, what you're saying is that Christ assumed a human nature, but not the ability to make human choices. But that's part of what it is to be a human, mm-hmm. is to be able to make choices in a human way. And uh, if Christ can't do that, if Christ can't, will things humanly, then Christ didn't become fully human. And that's the thing that the, uh, a lot of the councils were really concerned with uh, trying to preserve, is that Christ was fully God and fully human. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's like the intuitive kind of reason why it would be bad to say that Christ only has one will. All right, so we looked at uh, three different forms of heresy around the nature and person of Christ. So we've got one person, two natures, and we looked at the those that deny the full divinity of Christ, those that deny the full humanity of Christ, and those that uh, sort of create a fusion or blending of of Christ, um, so that he's also then not fully one or the other. Next episode, Patrick is going to look at some models for how we can positively think about the how two natures can be united in one person. That's right. Oh,